0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are pressing on in our series in the book of Numbers with James Jordan. And here he's going to be looking at Numbers chapters 15 through 20 in a talk titled Death and Resurrection. Do take a moment to check out our show notes where you can find information about upcoming events, links to our Psalm chant videos, as well as a link there to sign up for our weekly newsletter and Media Race. And when you sign up for that newsletter, we will send you a free and exclusive piece of content from James Jordan. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing Numbers chapters 15 through 20.
1: In this lecture we're going to be concerned with chapters 15 through 20 of Numbers. Chapter 15 is a reiteration of the promise after a fall. This is part of the pattern that we have been following in Exodus and Numbers, and the chart in the previous lecture shows it. After the golden calf incident, God reiterated his promise after bringing judgment on the people. And so it is here, after their refusal to go into the land, and the judgment that God brings upon them, there is a reiteration of the promise that they will inherit the land. And that sort of closes off this section Then we move into the death of Israel in the wilderness, and that's what we'll be concerned with through most of this lecture. But first of all, Numbers chapter 15, a renewal of the promise coming after the judgment after a golden calf type of episode and here we have another set of five laws we've seen these sets of five laws before in numbers and here is another one and the theme is the need to recognize God's fire and God's judgment the fire of God speaks of his judgment it consumes and destroys whatever is put upon the altar or else it purges out the dross and the wickedness of the Christian and leaves him purified In either event, it's God's fire that has to be recognized, and that is a major theme in chapter 15 and in the following chapters as well. We are moving into a time of judgment because the people refuse to fear God and fear the Canaanites instead, then we have a section here that emphasizes the fear of God. The other thing that chapter 15 does is it reiterates over and over that they will come into the promised land. So it's a renewal of the promise in the context of the fear of God's judgment. In verses 1 to 16, we have rules concerning libations. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land where you are to live, you see how the stress here is, you are going to enter it. It's going to be 40 years from now, but you are going to enter it. So the promise is renewed. When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you, then make an offering by fire. There's the emphasis on fire. Offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or as a freewill offering, or in your appointed times, to make a soothing aroma to the Lord, whether from the herd or from the flock. The one who presents his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering, of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a fourth of a hen of oil. Now this has all been given before in Leviticus. Now we have something new. You shall prepare wine for the libation. A fourth of the hen with the burnt offering of the sacrifice for each lamb. And then the rules go on, and you can read them if you wish, about how much flour and how much oil and how much wine is to be offered. Now, why the stress on wine? Well, there are no grapes in the wilderness. And so this is a law that can only take effect once they get into the land. But remember, it's a land of grapes. They brought back those grapes from the land and now God is telling them that when they come into this land that's full of grapes, and they turn the grapes into wine, then that's to be added to the sacrifice. Pouring out the wine on the altar, or at the foot of the altar, which is the way it was done, corresponds to what's done with the blood. The same thing's done with the wine that's done with the blood that's separated from the animal. When the animal is sacrificed, according to the law, the blood is always separated from the flesh. We have that in the Lord's Supper today. The bread and the wine are separated, and that's a picture of the rending or cutting of the covenant, the tearing apart of the animal, the separation of blood from flesh. Well, the same thing is done with the wine, it's done with the blood, and that creates a parallel between the two and pushes us toward the new covenant when the wine will substitute for the blood in the Lord's Supper. At any rate, the whole context here is an offering by fire that will atone for sin and reiterate the fear of God and also the promise that they will come into the land of grapes and have wine to offer. The second law has to do with the offering of the first dough. That's in verses 17 to 21. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where I bring you. So, here again, there is a stress on coming into the land. Then it shall be, when you eat of the fruit of the land, you will lift up an offering to the Lord. Literally, it's a heave offering, and that means it's given to the priests. The heave offering is always something given to the priest. And so what was done when they got into the land, and they eat the fruit of the land, and they were to give part of it to the priests, Of the first of your dough, you shall lift up a cake as an offering, as the offering, or heave offering, of the threshing floor, so you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord an offering, that is a heave offering, throughout all your generations. Now, that means that they give it to the priest. Now, the idea here is that when they come into the new land, they will have new leaven. They are cut off from the leaven in Egypt, and that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread means. You don't take Egyptian leaven because leaven is the principle of growth and maturation. It corresponds to the work of the Holy Spirit or any energizing principle. You take your dough and you put an energizing principle inside of it. And the energizing principle of Egypt that made them grow and develop a certain way, that's got to be cut off. And so you have a feast of unleavened bread where the old leaven is cut off. But when you get down to the feast of Pentecost 50 days later, then you have leavened bread that's offered And that offering of leaven bread means that they have gotten new leaven in a new place. And the new principle of growth is entirely proper. In fact, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like leaven that's put into three measures of meal that leavens until it leavens the whole lump. And really the fulfillment of that is the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, who is the principle of life and growth and energy that's been inserted into the loaf of humanity. Well, the idea here is that when they come to the land, they will get the new leaven of the land, and they will have dough that rises, and the first cake that they make, each one of them, is to be given to the priests, and it says this is to be done throughout your generations. Now, practically speaking, it would be impossible for an Israelite to give of his first loaf to the priest every time. Because they were Geographically separated The Jews applied this By saying that Whenever a woman Baked bread She pinched off Part of it And tossed it Into the fire Because her own hearth In her own house Was like the altar Of the Lord And so every hearth Fire became a little altar Just as every house Was consecrated To the Lord And that seems A reasonable Implication of this Probably when they First came into the land They gave their First dough to the priest Under Joshua And then throughout the generations they offered it to the Lord by throwing it into the fire while the rest of it baked. That is what the Jews did, and so that's most likely what was implied here. The idea, of course, again, is giving to the Lord once they come into the land and the promise is reiterated. In verses 22 to 31, we have laws about atonement. If you fail unwittingly, and disobey the commands of the Lord, or fail to observe them, then you bring your atonement. But it says, if a person does something defiantly, high-handedly, and if he's blaspheming the Lord, then he shall be cut off from among his people, because he's despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment. He shall be cut off, and his guilt shall be on him. Now, Leviticus 6, 1-7 gives an atonement for premeditated crimes, But there are certain crimes that are blasphemous in character and bring with them the death penalty, and for which, well, the atonement might be made for spiritual reasons, but that won't eliminate the civil punishment in Israel. But the placement of this law here seems again to have to do with respecting God's judgments and submitting to it. And if you don't respect God's fire and God's judgments, then you yourself will be destroyed. Now, we have, following that, an example of a high-handed sin. It's the story of the wood-gatherer. I have dealt with this in detail in my book, Sabbath Breaking and the Death, Penalty, and you find a reference to that in the syllabus. Here we can just read it and briefly comment on it. It says, While the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to the congregation. That's the leaders of the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Declared distinctly is what it literally says. The problem here is they didn't know if this was a high-handed sin or not a high-handed sin. They didn't know exactly what should be done with him. Then the Lord said to Moses, This man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Well... In Exodus, it says that no work is to be done on the Sabbath, and if a man does work, he's to be put to death. But that does not mean any kind of work. It means specifically stoking up your own hearthfire on the Sabbath. And the reason that was a crime was because only God's hearthfire on his altar was to be stoked up on the Sabbath day. There was a double offering on the Sabbath day, and God's hearthfire blazed brightly as a symbol of his judgment over Israel. And on that day, the Israelites could keep their own hearth fire burning, but they were not to build up a big fire on it. Now, this man was gathering wood on the Sabbath, clearly intending to stoke up his own hearth fire. And the question that came was, is an intent to commit a crime bring with it the same punishment as the crime itself? Is attempted murder the same as murder? And the answer seems to be yes. Attempted murder is as high-handed as, as murder. Just because you don't succeed doesn't mean you didn't try, and the offense is really against God, first of all, and against people, second of all, and so it brings the same punishment. This is a principle of law that would have to be applied carefully by people expert in that area, but the principle seems to be in the text that an attempt to commit a crime brings with it the same punishment as if you had succeeded in committing the crime because the offense is the same, against God. This man is identified as a high-handed sinner, and thus is dealt with that way. Well, as I said, for more information on this particular passage, you can consult my study, as mentioned in the syllabus. Finally, we have the laws about the tassels, and that's the fifth thing here. And again, the idea is to remind them of God's holiness and their privileges. Speak to the sons of Israel tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners, or literally wings of their garments, throughout their generations. They shall put on the tassel of each wing a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart, your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Well, what does this mean? Well, their garments had four corners because they were made like tents, and these tassels were like pegs that held up a tent, or pillars that held up a house. The corners are called wings, and the analogy is to the cherubim who had four wings. And just as the cherub has four wings and guards the holiness of God, so the Israelite had four wings, and he was to guard the holiness of God. And on his wing tip, the Israelite had this tassel of blue. Blue is the color of the sky, and just as the cherubim are positioned in the heavens and fly around, so the Israelite symbolically is positioned in the heavens. And the blue pillars that hold up his house are like the sky itself, and he is positioned up in the sky with his four wings. So again, the analogy is to Israel as a heavenly company of people. The cherubim flying and guard God's holiness, and have four wings. Similarly, the Israelite has four wings, and he flies in the spiritual heavens and guards the holiness of God. Well, their sin and their rebellion to sending them to 40 years into the wilderness was because they had failed in their privilege of being a heavenly people, and they had failed in their privilege of guarding God's holiness, and now they're reminded of this. And this passage, Numbers 15, then, tells them that they will enter the land, that there is atonement for sin, but for high-handed sin, there is no atonement. High-handed rebellion, there is no atonement. And that's why they were wandering for 40 years, because God had decided that after 10 times, their sin was no longer unwitting, but high-handed. But he reminds them that all of them are priests in one sense, each one of them has a heavenly calling, and that they will guard his holiness then he will bless them. Now, immediately, we find more examples of high handed sin, and we have three rebellions. The rebellions come in sets of threes, and we have another set of three rebellions in chapter 16 and 17. These three rebellions are not so much against the Lord as they are against the leaders. And this is part of the theology of numbers again. In Exodus, the rebellions are primarily against the Lord, and the first ten rebellions that we've seen up to now, are against the Lord and have brought judgment as they test the Lord. Now we have three rebellions against the leadership in Israel, and the focus here is not so much on rebelling against God, but on rebelling against Moses and Aaron. And again, the point in the book of Numbers is the establishment of the kingdom and of the army and of God's representatives. And God's representatives have been set up as the priests and then the Levites and then also the civil leaders over the people of whom Moses was chief. And so rebellion against these leaders is ultimately rebellion against God, and that's the parallel, and that's the advance in the theology that we have here. The rebellion is grounded in what we just found in chapter 15, that all of God's people are holy, and they all wear the tassel of blue, and they all have special clothes. And so the rebellious seize hold of that and say, We're just as good as you, all of God's people are holy, and there's no need to have a special set of Levites or priests. Everybody should be equal. That, of course, is just a pretext. No one really believes that. Anyone who uses that argument is actually seeking a revolution and to have himself enthroned. But we have three such rebellions, or three incidents, of rebellion and affirmation of God's hierarchy they come up in chapter 16 and 17. The first rebellion is known as the Rebellion of Korah. It was actually a twin rebellion. We find it in chapter 16 verses 1 to 35. Korah the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. So this man was one of the Kohathites among the Levites. Together with Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and Aram the son of Peleth, who were sons of Reuben. Now, you have actually two groups here. Korah, who is of Levi, is jealous of Aaron's prerogatives as priest. Dathan and Abiram, who are of the tribe of Reuben, are basically jealous of Moses' prerogative as leader. The tribe of Reuben always had a problem because Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. But Reuben, because of his sins, had been set aside and Judah had become the preeminent tribe. But the Reubenites seem to be involved in a political rebellion against Moses, and the Korahites are involved in a religious rebellion against Aaron. They rose up together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation who had been chosen in the assembly are men of renown. So they got quite an army of the most important people in Israel together to lead this rebellion. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said, You've gone far enough. You've gone too far, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is in their midst, so why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? The basic charge here is that Moses and Aaron have seized power and made themselves kings, made themselves rulers over the people in some sense. Now, the next several chapters will deal with that, and it will make clear, what should have been clear already, that the Lord had chosen these people, and the Lord had made them rulers over the congregation. Well, Moses fell on his face, interceded for the people, and then he deals with Korah. He deals with each of these rebellions. Verses 4 to 11 deal with the priestly rebellion. He tells Korah and his people to take censers, put fire in them, and lay incense on them, and come before God, and we'll see whom the Lord chooses. So that's how the religious rebellion will be dealt with. They'll all offer incense And then we'll see whom the Lord chooses, if the Lord accepts their offering or not. Now, you would think they'd be nervous about this because Nadab and Abihu had offered strange fire before the Lord and they had been killed. But apparently these men are so full of themselves that they're convinced that it's not going to make any difference. And so they go ahead with the plan. Well, then in verses 12 to 14, Moses summoned Nathan and Abiram, who were leading the political revolution, and they refused to come. They just brought a whole bunch of charges against Moses and were utterly contumente. Well, Moses became angry and said to the Lord, don't regard their offering. And then he returns to speak to Korah and say that tomorrow is the day that they are to bring their incense and also Aaron will bring it and they'll see whom the Lord chooses. The emphasis in the passage is on the priestly rebellion because it's primary rebellion against God's ministers is more fundamental than rebellion against civil authorities. But both, of course, are rebellion against God. Well, then the Lord decided to consume the whole congregation because of their implicit support of this. And Moses had to intercede for the people, and God decided to be merciful and instead gave the congregation a warning to separate. Speak to the congregation saying, Get back away from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. Now, these are all principles that apply in church government. When people are summoned to appear after they've committed rebellious acts and they refuse, then they're and they have to be put to death or excommunicated. That's been the principle in the church for 2,000 years, and it continues to be. Dathan and Abiram are going to be put to death here, but the church has no power to do that, but it does have the power to excommunicate. When people get involved in rebellion and then refuse to appear before the elders or the pastor when they're called, then they need to be cut off from the Lord's table. Similarly, people who presume to set up their own churches without any authority need to be dealt with. There are situations where men will decide that they're just as good as an ordained officer in the church and will go off and celebrate communion on their own, and such persons need to be cut off. Only the officers of the church can oversee and perform the Lord's Supper. And so these forms of rebellion have to be dealt with, and this passage is quite clear on that point. And the congregation will have to choose. You see, when this happens in a church, a congregation has to choose whom it will side with. Neutrality is impossible. And the congregation is told to get away from Korod, and and Abiram. So, Moses warns them to... In verse 27, it says the congregation got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Now, it doesn't say that Korah's family stood with him, and so that's important too. The family needs to separate from the rebel. That's true in church discipline as well. We see it with Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira stood with her husband, and Sapphira received the same judgment that her husband received. That's a hard thing in church discipline, but it's absolutely true. If we baptize whole families, then we have to judge whole families. And wives and children must separate from rebellious husbands or else suffer along with them. And that is something that has to be emphasized over and over again. The sad thing is that, generally speaking, wives will go down with their husbands. The husband provokes trouble, provokes rebellion, has to be dealt with, has to be censured, and the wife goes right along with him instead of separating from him. Well, happily, the families of Korah did separate from him. He and his servants perished, but his children did not. And so later on in history, we find that the sons of Korah are performing righteous service in the temple in the days of David. But there are no sons of David and Abiram. They're wiped out on this occasion. Well, Moses says that by this you will know that the Lord has sent me to do these deeds. Though this is not my doing, it wasn't my idea to be the leader of all you people. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings up a new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that's theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. When he finished speaking, then the ground split open, and the earth opened his mouth and swallowed them up. All the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions, as well as Dathan and Byram. All right. So everybody involved in it who didn't separate was eaten up by the ground. Now, the idea here is returning to the dust, and that's a picture of death. The ground opens and swallows them, and that means they have returned to the dust. dust thou art, and the dust thou shalt return. It says they went down alive to Sheol. That means they went down into the earth while they were still alive. They weren't buried after they were dead. They were buried alive. Well, all Israel who were around them fled and said the earth may swallow us up, because of course they were guilty of sympathizing. And then it says fire came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. So they died the same death as Nadab and Abihu, and it shows their folly in becoming involved in this conspiracy and rebellion. They were offering strange fire, and God's fire consumed them. Remember, fire is a prominent theme in this section of the book of Numbers, because it speaks of God's judgment. Well, that is the first rebellion, and how it was dealt with. As a prelude to the second rebellion, to emphasize Aaron's position in the camp, Moses tells Eleazar to take the censers that the 250 men used and beat them out as sheets as a plating for the altar so that they will be a permanent sign to Israel. Whenever the Israelites offered their sacrifices at the altar, they would be reminded when they saw these bronze plates attached to the altar that they were to come no closer. That was as close as they could come. Only the priests might offer incense. But it says in verse 41, the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. And so it came about when the congregation assembled against Moses and Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting because the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Get away from this congregation that I may consume the mystery. And so they have to intercede again for these rebellious people. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it and bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. Wrath has gone forth from the Lord and the plague has begun. Now, the reference to plague here takes us back to Egypt and we're really back to Passover. These people had rejected God and thus they were no longer under the protection of the Passover and the angel of death is now in their midst to slaughter them. And I guess we would have to say that it was God's intention at this point to kill all the people, as he had said. And the only thing that's going to make atonement for them is the work of Aaron. And this will show to the people that it's Aaron who is the priest, and they are not. There is a hierarchy, and they have no business presuming to rebel against that hierarchy. The plague comes upon them because they had rejected Passover. And now the angel of death is in their midst. So Aaron took the censer, as Moses had spoken, it took him a few minutes to get all this done, and ran into the midst of the assembly. But behold, the plague had begun among the people. And he took his stand between the dead and the living, and so the plague was checked. In other words, there was just a progressive moving through the camp on the part of the angel of death. And when Aaron took his stand between the people and the angel, then that was the end of it. We're told that 14,700 people died in the plague in addition to those who died on account of Korah. So here again we have affirmed that only Aaron can save the people from the plague. They must respect the system of sacrifice and worship that God has set up, or else they will die. The final rebellion, it's not so much a rebellion but it's an aftermath of it, is in chapter 17. We have one more affirmation of Aaron's position. The Lord himself initiates this when it says, Speak to the sons of Israel, and get from them a rod for each father's household, twelve rods, one for each tribe, and write the names on the rods, and write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, one rod per household or tribe. You shall deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony, that is, in front of the ark where I meet with you. And it will come about that the rod of the man whom I will choose will sprout, Thus I will lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. So there's the rebellion aspect. There's still grumbling going on. And so they do this. And it came about the next day that the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi has sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. So it had buds on it, it had blossoms on it, and it also had ripe almonds on it. This showed whom the Lord preferred. The Lord said to Moses, put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. So God will put it before his face and he will see it all the time and it will remind God whom he has chosen. And that's a continuing threat to any who would presume to take Aaron's place. The blossoms of the almond are white and Ecclesiastes chapter 12 compares the glories of the older man the aged person to the almond the almond branch then is a symbol for the man and that's true anyway that the rod of Moses and the rod of Aaron and other rods or staffs symbolize the people who hold them Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says speaking of the older man who was approaching death it says the almond tree blossoms that means the hair becomes white but that's not seen as a bad thing in the scripture, but as a good thing. White hair is glorious crown to a man's life. That's why Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 is pictured in his glory as having hair white as wool and white as snow. And so the blossoming of Aaron's rod with this white bloom on the top means that he is the one who is glorified. He is the one who is the elder over all the rest. The almonds that are on there also speak of the fruitfulness that will come from Aaron and not from the rest. If they want to eat of the tree of life, they're going to have to come to Aaron and not to anyone else. Well, the result of this is that the sons of Israel spoke to Moses saying, Behold, we perish, we are dying, we are all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? And that emphasis there climaxes. Well, it doesn't completely climax, but it certainly highlights what's going on during the 40 years of wandering. They will all perish, all of the generation that came out that were 20 years old and older. Everybody who was numbered in the first census, in other words, is going to perish, except for Joshua and Caleb. Now, the the climax of that really will be the death of Moses way at the end, but this highlights it. And theologically, it's like the flood. The flood. Their rebellion has put them out of the land of promise and left them in the wilderness and now they will all die just as everyone died in the flood and there will have to be a new generation. Now we begin to have what I consider to be a recreation section in Numbers 18 and 19 and going on into 20, God once again sets forth rules for how the people are to be constituted how the priests and the Levites and the people are to be constituted as his army. And that's found in chapters 18 and 19. And then in chapter 20, we find Miriam, Moses, and Aaron, all three, dying. Now Moses doesn't die at that point, but he's told that he's not going to enter the promised land. Miriam and Aaron also die. And these two things together form the end of the old creation, the death of all the people coming out of Egypt who were enrolled in the first census and are a recreation, another new Adam recreation of uh, holy people who will conquer the land and so in terms of my own outlining of the book of Numbers, I make a break here on the beginning of a new thing here in chapter 18. We've had death, now we begin to have a resurrection of new man. In chapters 18 and 19, we have this recreation of a new Adam motif, and the first section, verses 1 to 7, talks about the three classes of men that are in the army, the priest, the Levite, and the outsider, and it talks about how they're related one to another. Only the priest can come into the tent, the Levites will serve them, but they're not supposed to come into the tent, and the outsider, or layman, may not come near Except into the court itself, and he will be assisted by the Levites and the priests. And so here again is a reiteration of the theme that God is holy and his hierarchy that he'd set up in the Old Testament is to be respected, and also a discussion of the three classes. Then we turn to the priests in verses 8 to 20 of chapter 18. The stress here is that God will take care of them. They don't inherit the land but God will feed them. And the discussion here is entirely in terms of what portions of the sacrifice they get to eat and what God gives them from all the gifts that the people provide. Verse 20 says, You will have no inheritance in the land nor any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Of course, ultimately that's true of all of us. Ultimately, the Lord himself is our inheritance and our yearning for him Our feeling that he is not with us as much as we want is our yearning for that inheritance. Then in terms of the Levites, in verses 21 to 32, again, the idea is what God has given them. This is the passage that says the tithe is to be given to the Levites. And then it says that the Levites are to give a tithe over to the priests. So, 10% of Israel went to the Levites and a tenth of that, or 1%, and on up to the priests. This proves that pastors are supposed to pay a tithe on their salary, but beyond that, it shows what God will provide for the Levites. Again, they don't inherit the land, although they will have cities that they can live in, and they will have their own dwellings in the towns where they maintain the synagogues. But basically, they won't have land. They won't be providing very much in the way of capital growth, But God has given them the tithe. So the idea here is a new creation, just as God fed Adam in the garden, so God feeds the priests and the Levites. And finally in chapter 19 we come to Israel, and again the idea here is how to restore the people. Back at the beginning of the book of Numbers we saw that the new Adam section had to do with the warriors and the priests. And then on cleansing, here these things are pulled together. We've talked about the priests and the Levites and how God is going to take care of them. Now we talk about the Israelites and how God takes care of them, particularly in terms of cleansing. This is the law of the red heifer. A heifer is a cow. It has to be a cow that's never been used for ordinary domestic labor. A yoke has never been placed on it. The red cow is burned up entirely and turned to ashes along with other materials that are burned up with it, all of which are red. And this has to be a red cow. It symbolizes blood. And then those ashes are put in water, and they're sprinkled on people who need to be purified. This is the Old Testament form of baptism. We notice that it's by sprinkling. The person who touches the corpse of any other person is unclean for seven days, because uncleanness basically means death. The ground is cursed with death. And so when you become dirty, you get death on you. And here the idea is that if you have to touch the corpse of a person to bury him or any other reason, then you become unclean for seven days. It destroys a week. And the person is purified on the third day and on the seventh day, which are symbols of resurrection. You see, if uncleanness is death, then cleansing is resurrection. And there's a resurrection on the third day, which is the first resurrection, And then there's a resurrection on the seventh day, which is the second resurrection. And this becomes important in the New Testament, where we find that Jesus was raised on the third day, and we are in union with that. We're spiritually resurrected. And then we're promised that there will be, at the end of history, a bodily resurrection for us. We, as Christians, have experienced the first resurrection, but not the second. We live in between. We are cleansed but we're still unclean so that's the tension in which we live we are already but not yet cleansed we are already but not yet resurrected we've had the first cleansing but not the second and so we have new hearts and yet we also have to wrestle with indwelling sin and it's a picture of history as well if god didn't do that with us then history would never take place god has to regenerate his people so that they can work in this world and do good works and put the kingdom back on the track in order for there to be any future at all. So this two-stage process is important to history. We can't go into that in any more detail. So that's the law of sprinkling with the ashes of the heifer. The baptisms of the Old Testament, the ashes and the water, we're told in the New Testament that we are now sprinkled with clean water. The ashes are really a figure of the death of Christ and we don't need to kill any cows anymore. We understand that the death of Jesus Christ is applied to us in baptism and that we are cleansed and given that first resurrection symbolically at baptism. Well, then we come in chapter 20 to the end of the old generation. Miriam dies in verse 1 and we are now at the first month of the 40th year And so now we're moving right to the end. We have come to the end of the wilderness wanderings, and we're now going to proceed into the land. Miriam dies and is buried at Kadesh. Then we have the second Meribah incident, where Moses is disqualified. And that goes from verse 2 to 21, and then the death of Aaron completes the chapter. Let's look at the second Meribah incident. There was no water for the congregation in the assembly against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we'd perish when our brothers perish before the Lord. This is all the young children that have grown up, and their fathers are almost all dead. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? These are all the children who had heard about how nice Egypt was from their parents. This is not a place of grain or vines or figs or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod. Okay, now it's not clear what rod this is. Is this Moses' rod with which he struck the rod and that speaks of judgment, or is it Aaron's rod that speaks of intercession? And we'll see which one it is. Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble a congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield us water. And you shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. Okay, this is Aaron's rod that speaks of priestly intercession. Moses' rod speaks of judgment. The first Meribah incident, Moses gathered the elders together from the law court and struck the rock. God said I will stand on the rock so the cloud was positioned on the rock and the rod came down through the cloud and struck the rock which was a symbol that God would take the punishment that the people deserved. But Christ only dies once not over and over again. And so it was inappropriate on this occasion to do the same thing. Rather, the rock had been struck once Christ had died once judgment had been passed once and now... It was a ministry of intercession. And so Moses brought Aaron rather than the elders. And he didn't form a law court. Rather, he formed a worship assembly. And he was supposed to take the rod of intercession and worship God and ask prayerfully for water. And that's the difference. And it's an important difference because it makes all the difference in the world how you approach God. The Father himself has judged the Son. We don't pass judgment on the Son again in worship, rather, we ask. Our worship is prayer. Well, Moses sinned. Moses understood this. They might seem obscure to us, but they knew how to function with symbols in the ancient world, and it wasn't so strange to him. Moses, however, loses his temper and fails to do what God says. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Well, that's wrong, you see. Moses and Aaron didn't bring forth any water. But Moses finally loses his cool at the age of 120. Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with the rod. And water came forth abundantly. Here we see the grace of God that God honored, provided for his people anyway, even though Moses dishonored him the Lord said to Moses and Aaron because you have not believed me to treat me wholly in the sight of the sons of Israel therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them so immediately we have an attempt on Moses' part to take them into the land that's thwarted Moses sends to Edom and asks for permission to go through Edomite territory but the Edomites refuse and so Israel has to turn away and go the long way around to get into the promised land and that's what prevents Moses from going in then we have the death of Aaron it's recorded for us in verses 22 to 29 God announces that Aaron is going to die because of the sin at Meribah that we've just read about and Moses takes Aaron's garments and puts them on Eleazar makes him the high priest and then Moses dies and is buried on Mount Hor now The death of Aaron is the death of the high priest. And in Numbers chapter 35, this is explained later, but it applies here. Numbers 35 verse 28 says that the man who is hiding in the city of refuge has to hide there until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. Now, theologically, that's what's going on here. The people are excluded from the land of Canaan because of their sin. They're not allowed to go in. And the wilderness forms a city of refuge for them, and God has kept them out there because they can't go into the land because of their sin. The death of Aaron, however, cleanses the land, just as the death of the high priest cleanses the blood of the land and enables the manslayer to leave the city of refuge and go into the land of his inheritance it's absolutely essential then for Aaron to die in order to enable the people to go in and conquer the land this takes care of the last of their sins Moses of course will be dealt with later but here is a wiping clean of the slate so to speak with the death of Aaron and they can start over again, and that's immediately what happens. As soon as Aaron dies, it says the Canaanite who lived in the Negev heard that Israel was coming, and Israel fought the Canaanite and utterly destroyed him in a place called Hormah. It was at Hormah that they had lost their victory before the Canaanites back in chapter 14 when they foolishly attacked the Canaanites, and God said that he would not grant them a victory. But now as soon as Aaron is dead, They start to conquer the Canaanites, and they have a complete triumph. And so that's the theology here. The end of the old generation means we have a new creation, a new opportunity, and now they can go in and conquer the land. And we'll see what they do in our next lecture.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.